I'm excited to preach this text tonight. I mean, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus all the time, right? But I don't know. Maybe it's just where I'm at. Um, it's one of those texts that, I, you know, listen, I hope, I hope when you came this evening that you're full of joy for whatever reason <laughs> in praising God. But I also recognize that some of you aren't. Some, there's some hard things going on in life, too. And so um, wherever you're at on that spectrum, I think that this text has a lot of good things to say for us. It is, it is good news. Um, so Let's hear the invitation of the text, and uh, then we will unpack it together. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. When he had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, he earnestly implored him, saying, He's worthy for you to grant to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. Do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the the gate of the city, the dead man was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Then the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has has visited among us. God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over all Judea and all the surrounding district. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of opening the word for us. We thank you that through your ministry, Holy Spirit, this isn't just some ancient text or an old story, but it is a living word that has the ability to challenge us and encourage us and to give us life. We need your life. Fill us with life this evening as we open ourselves up to what it is you have to say to us. Amen. You may be seated.
course, we're always trying to, uh, to teach Bible as, as, as I preach Bible. So if you want to, you can follow along in your text. We'll kind of go through the, the verses, at least in chunks. And the first thing I, I wanted to, to point out in, in chapter 7, verse 1, is, is we have kind of a transition verse, don't we? It says, um, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Uh, begs the question, well, what discourse is he talking about? And of course, he's referring to chapter 6 and this thing we've called the Sermon on the Plain. Luke's account of Jesus' Beatitudes and the sermon about the disposition of a disciple as we live in the kingdom of God. You may recall that Jesus said some hard things in the Sermon on the Plain, things like love your enemies and give without expectation of return. Uh, don't judge others, but take an honest look at yourself. That's a tough one we don't like. Don't build on the false foundations of the world but build on the strong foundation of Jesus. With these kinds of sayings in mind, let's look now at this first part of the, the story of Jesus. We're introduced to someone, uh, a centurion. And of course, a centurion is a high-ranking Roman military official who is roughly in charge of, of 100 or so people, give or take. Um, and centurions uh, were not only military men, but they were also um, in these outposts, these small towns in Roman-occupied territory. They were also uh, functioning as magistrates and people who would hear minor, minor cases. Right? They're relatively wealthy, and they had significant political power. Most importantly for Luke's first century audience, centurions were the physical representations of the Roman Empire. They were the tip of the Roman spear, the fist of the Roman machine, the incarnation, if you will, of Caesar himself. You see, most people in these small towns in the ancient world never left their small town, or maybe they traveled to Jerusalem for festivals, but almost guaranteed no one or very few of them would ever actually see the face of Caesar their whole life. There was no TV, there was no tabloids, they wouldn't travel to Rome unless they're in serious trouble or something, or some serious merchant. But they would never see the face of Caesar except for on a coin, or maybe on the bust of a carving. But you know whose face they would see maybe all too much is the face of the centurion in their town. Oh, they would know his face uh, and his disposition, whether that was a good or a bad thing. Uh, it, it went centurion to centurion. But what what they would know is that centurions were the enemy. The centurion in our story has a particular problem, and it's such a big problem that not, all the, not even all the power in Rome can help him with it. See, he has a slave, and, and he, he loves this slave. In fact, in verse 7, um, the Greek in, in that sentence uh, changes the word from slave to a son or a child. This is trying to reveal the, the type of uh, relationship the centurion had with this slave. He loves this slave. He's endeared to him, and, and so he needs help because the slave is terminally ill. And so this centurion does what people in power do. They use their vast so social network, and so he sends Jewish elders to Jesus to ask for help. It turns out that this centurion had been a real helper in his community. He had helped finance the synagogue in their town. We don't know if he became sympathetic to the Jewish religion or if he, like so many other Romans, acted as a patron to please the locals while at the same time putting them in his debt. 
Regardless, social customs would have meant that these Jewish elders were obligated to do this favor for the centurion, if not because he's a Roman dude telling them what to do, then because they're under his debt because he built their synagogue. So the elders go and request that Jesus comes, and Jesus comes. He begins walking toward the centurion's house. Now, this isn't necessarily the main point of the text or my sermon, but I think it's significant, so allow me an aside. Jesus had just taught in chapter 6 about loving one's enemies, right? Now, if you were to ask a first century Jewish person, who's your enemy? I'm thinking nine out of 10 would say the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus is willing to go and not only meet with this Roman centurion, but to heal his, his servant. Jesus practices what he preaches. Our world is full of leaders who talk a lot. And a lot of them call us to very high ideals right? And very few of them actually lift a finger to do what it is they're asking us to do. But Jesus is not that kind of leader. Amen? Come on, I just was preaching at First Baptist this morning, and they say amen a lot. So, um, (laughs) Jesus is not that kind of leader. He's the kind of leader who walks his talk as well. And I love that about him. He, that endears me to him. He practices what he preaches. Okay, so back to the mainstream of the narrative. Jesus gets close to the centurion's house, but before he enters, the centurion now sends another delegation of his friends. And he knows three things. This is what he knows. First, he knows that it would defile a Jewish person like Jesus to come into his house. Second, he knew that he's not worthy for Jesus to come into his house. Not not just because of the Jew-Gentile thing, but he just is, is aware of his own unworthiness. And third, he believes that Jesus is able to heal with the word, able to do this mighty deed at a distance. What faith. What faith. In fact, this centurion's faith is so potent that the text says Jesus marveled at him. You know, up to this point, Jesus is doing amazing things. He's walking on water. He's healing lepers. He's doing crazy, cool stuff. And everyone's marveling at him and astonished at him and praising God because of him. This is the first time in the text that Jesus marvels at someone else's faith. And it happens to be a Roman centurion. He says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. It reminds me of another story, a story that these people would have known because because it's in their Hebrew scriptures, and it's the story that Ryan read from uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman, and I want us to consider some of these similarities. In our story, in Luke 7, uh, we have a centurion who's a well-respected Gentile officer, and of course, Naaman is a well-respected maybe not well-liked, respect isn't the same as liked, uh, but he's a well-respected Gentile officer. In Luke 7, we have intercession of the Jewish elders on behalf of of a healing that needs to take place. And in 2 Kings 5, we have this intercession from a Jewish girl uh, on behalf of Naaman's healing. Luke 7, the centurion doesn't ever meet Jesus. And in 2 Kings 5, Naaman doesn't actually meet Elisha either. The healing takes place at a distance in the gospel story, and the healing takes place at a distance in the 2 Kings story. The story in 2 Kings, the story of Naaman that Ryan read earlier, highlights the graciousness of God and the faith and graciousness of a Jewish slave girl. She is practicing 
the vocation of Israel by being a light to the nations. Here is a foreign oppressive leader. Naaman was a captain of the Aramean army. I, I don't know if you can appreciate the significance of this. So this dude came in to Israel, to a town where this girl was living, likely killed the able-bodied men, did whatever they would do to the women, and then he stole this girl from her hometown, takes her back to his land, and says, here you go, honey, to his wife, and says, here's your new slave girl. Okay. Now, this guy gets leprosy. If you were that slave girl, wouldn't you, I mean, I'll just reveal it myself here, my own wicked heart. Wouldn't you be tempted to be like, serves you right, you rotten bugger, or something like that? That was pretty churchy. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like this girl's just ripped from her family, and now this guy's kind of getting his, isn't he? But no, this girl has compassion on him, and she's living out the vocation that God gave to Abraham and to all his people since, and that is to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to the world, so that the world, the nations, would come to know how good and gracious and powerful the God of Israel is, so that they would encounter that and then come and worship him. So here's a foreign, high-ranking leader with leprosy. This slave girl says, hey, I know someone who can heal you. It's the God of Israel, and he can heal you through his prophet Elisha. You should go to him. That's evangelism. That's a girl practicing the vocation of the nation of Israel. The story of Luke takes place centuries and centuries after the story of Naaman, and it appears to be more of the same. It appears that perhaps Israel is again being a light to the nations. But as we're going to see, sadly, that is not the case. And so Joe's going to put up the differences here. There we go. So here are some of the differences in the story. We looked at the similarities, but now we see in Luke 7 that a Gentile officer initiates contact with Jesus. But in, in 2 Kings 5, it's the, the Jewish girl who initiates the contact. In Luke 7, the Jewish elders act out of an obligation, and in 2 Kings 5, the Jewish girl acts out of compassion. In, in Luke 7, the Gentile officer has great humility, doesn't he? He's not even worthy for Jesus to come into his house. But in 2 Kings 5, the Gentile officer is actually quite prideful. And in Luke 7, the Gentile officer uh, has great faith, where in 2 Kings 5, the Gentile officer learns faith and eventually turns to God. It's interesting then that in the second Kings 5, it is the Jewish girl who's doing what she's supposed to do and being the advocate for the Gentile man who then goes to God and is healed and ends up coming to God. That's the way it's supposed to work. But in the Luke 7 story, we actually see the Gentile being the one with more humility than the Jewish people. We see the Gentile Roman official being the one with more faith. And this is, is kind of a, a mirror, I think, Jesus is pointing up to the people saying, Look, listen, just because you have this background or just because you have that story or just because you know, Abraham is your father doesn't necessarily mean you have faith like this man has faith. You know, what's interesting is that this centurion probably does not have his theology straight. In fact, he's, he's likely a pagan polytheist. And if anything, he simply added the God of Israel to his pantheon of other gods that he worships and sacrifices to. But there's a quality about his faith, isn't there? That's powerful. You know, he may not know as much about God as the Jewish elders knew about God, 
but he put his faith in the power of God and the character of God. I remember hearing a, a story at a leadership conference uh, about, uh, it was about faith, really, and it was about two men who sold power tools, table saws. And, and this is back when, the, you know, now it's standard, right, Gary, where they have the sensor that, if, you know, if you put your hand by the blade, this massive break stops it immediately. It saves a lot of digits. But back in the day when, when, when that was new technology, you know, these salesmen would have a spectrum of table saws, and the high-end table saw was the one with the break. Well, the second best salesman in this company was a young, mid-20s, handsome, well-spoken, well-dressed young guy, and he understood the technology of this table saw, and he had cutaway diagrams of the break and how fast he had it all, like, this is how many milliseconds it can stop that blade, and he sold a lot of those table saws by by showing people how they worked. The number one salesman was actually an older, crusty guy who did construction for over 30 years of his life, was missing two digits, and he didn't really, I don't even think he understood how the thing worked, but this was a spiel. He'd turn it on, and he would get it running, and he'd put his hand on the table saw, and he would run it at the blade, and it would stop. And he'd say, now, you could spend a little less and get one of these here, but let me tell you something, and then he'd hold up his two stubs. <laughs> it might just be worth it to spend a little extra on this one. Really effective. He didn't really know all the stuff about how it worked. He just knew it worked, and he was willing to show the people that it worked really well, like he put his hand on there every single time. A lot of us have studied the Bible, maybe gone to church all your life and heard a lot of sermons or gone to Bible studies. Uh, Some of you have been to Bible college. Some of us have been to seminary. All good things. I I, I think those, those can be good things, but they're useless if you don't actually practice your faith. The centurion knew that all Jesus had to do was say the word and he could undo a terminal illness that would take the life of his servant. There's no doubt about it. Are there things in your life or the life of this church or the life of the church? Are there things in the world scene you're concerned about that we need Jesus to just say the word? and fix, because they're bigger than us. Jesus, say the word, and you can reveal yourself to my friends and my family who don't yet know how good you are. Jesus, say the word, and you can soften the hearts of the powers that be in our community for the homeless and the new shelter we need to build to minister to them. Say the word, Jesus, you can make that happen. Because I was at the Port Commission and I was speaking on behalf of it and it didn't happen because of my testimony or the many other people that wanted it. But you know what? Jesus can make it happen. And he can have, maybe it'll happen in a place that's better suited. Just say the word. Jesus, just say the word and you can open my eyes again to your beauty and to your presence because I've been showing up a lot lately. My heart's grown cold and I don't know why. And all the Bible studies in the world and all the spiritual disciplines aren't meeting that need. Just say the word, Lord. I know you can, you can light the fire again. Just say the word and, and draw people to come and to worship into, into the churches in our county that lift up your name. 
Just say the word and, and you can topple corrupt regimes or you can soften the hearts of tyrants. We don't need nuclear escalation again, for heaven's sake. You just say the word, Lord. You can do the things that we can't do with our archaic solutions. Just say the word, Lord. Do we ask, even, like the centurion did? I want to encourage us, obviously, and I think the text does, to, to have faith, um, to ask Jesus to say the word. But I also want to say that that's not what this whole passage is about, even though it's a great side thing. Um, there's some other good news here. This, this story is not all about the centurion. It is not all about, hey, church, see the faith of the centurion. You should muster up that kind of faith. Now go to work. Amen. Sermon done. That, that's not what this is all about. I think that the story is about something else. It's something more. It's about access to God. It's an invitation for you and I to have faith. See, the centurion knew deep in his heart that he didn't have any claim on Jesus. He was not Jewish. He was not part of the worshiping community of the Jews. He knew that according to Jewish law, his very essence, his very being Gentile-ness disqualified him in his mind and in the, in the customs from having access to God and, and, and to God's prophet or Messiah, Jesus. But in this story, we see that Jesus is the one who is acting as faithful Israel. He is the one who's willing to cross cultural and even religious boundaries in order, um, in order to make the unclean clean. He's able to heal even a corrupt Roman centurion. A lot of times, we think that we are going to make other people dirty or that somehow we are going to make Jesus dirty. He's the good infection. He infects you. He infects me. He infects everything that he touches. He infects it with good and beauty and restoration. You can't, you can't make Jesus dirty. Every person that he encounters in Scripture who we would consider dirty and sinful, he has a way of turning them around. Jesus marveled at the humility and faith of the centurion, but let's not lose sight of the humility and love of Jesus, who was on his way to the centurion's house. He was going to do something, go into this guy's house that would just add fuel to the fire to all those religious leaders who were just looking for excuses to take him out, to say bad things about him. He was willing to tarnish his reputation to heal this person's servant. And I, and I think this attitude of Jesus is most clearly illustrated in the next section of the passage. You know, Jesus is walking with his disciples now, uh, about ready to go through the gate of the town of Nain, which is about five miles outside of Nazareth, where he grew up, you know, so local place there. And as he's about ready to go into the gate of Nain, who's coming out but this funeral procession? And, and you can imagine the scene. It says there was a large crowd, probably a group of professional whalers there, um, which, by the way, it's just such a great idea. <laughs> like our funerals are so not healthy, how we're supposed to sit quiet and, and, and apologize. I'm, I'm sorry I'm getting choked up. Yeah, somebody's dead. You should cry. I think the professional mourners, what they do is they, hey, it's normal to cry. Get it out. 
And in this culture, in custom, in time, just with the, you know, with no preservation and, and the heat, uh, people were often buried within 24 hours of death. So this is, you know, this widow who's coming out, this mother of this only begotten son has just lost her, her last living relative, or at least male relative, her security blanket in a male-dominated world. It's all fresh. It just happened. This guy just died, and they're on the way out. And what happens? Jesus has compassion. And he's always doing stuff like this, going the extra mile. Oh, he doesn't just heal the leper, he touches the leper. Why do you have to do that? It's like he's messing with people, but he touches the funeral fire, kind of the, you know, the, the, the stretcher thing that this, this person's on. He touches it, and he says to the boy, young man, arise. I love that part of the story. You know, the faith of the centurion is great. And it can be a model for us in an ideal world. But sometimes, aren't we so overwhelmed that we just don't find we have the faith to cry out? That sometimes we're not so sure if we ask Jesus if he could just say the word and fix our issue. Sometimes we are so over our heads with grief, so overwhelmed with financial stress, so maxed out by overextending our own lives. We're in that boat. Sometimes we're so broken by a failed or failing relationship. Sometimes we just don't have it in us for whatever reason to pray, Jesus, say the word. What then? What if we don't go to him like the centurion does? What if we don't have it in us? Well, thankfully... This story tells us that Jesus takes the initiative. He's compassionate and he's full of mercy. The widow doesn't ask him to do anything. She's just going out to bury her kid. And Jesus comes in and he says, don't weep. He intervenes. He breaks another ritual purity boundary and he touches the buyer. And he says to the young man, arise. And he does. And he begins to speak. Of course, fear gripped them all. The text says, Uh, that the people replied, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Why would they say that? Of course, because this story mirrors another story from the Hebrew scriptures. It comes from 1 Kings 17. And of course, it's the story where the prophet Elijah is staying with a woman who's a widow, has one son, and this son dies. And she's upset wonders if maybe it's some judgment because Elijah's staying with her. And he cries out to God, lays on top of this kid. It's a very surreal scene. And breathes on him. And the son comes back to life. What is Luke doing here? Two short stories in a row. Centurion and the widow and her son. One story looks at 2 Kings 5 where we have one of the great prophets, Elisha, doing the work of God. And in this story, we have a story of mirroring the great prophet Elijah. Elisha and Elijah, the two great prophets of Israel. And here Jesus comes doing similar things, but doing with with his own authority, with his own words. He's not asking God to intervene. He just says, get up. The kid gets up. What is going on? Well, I'm going to save the identity question for Elliot next week. He's going to be preaching on the, just the very next section and take that home, brother. But I'm going I'm to try and stay focused um, to the main point of this text. 
and that is faith that trusts Jesus. Faith that believes that all Jesus has to do is say the word. Faith that he's accessible, that he actually cares that you want him to say the word. And faith in the good news that like the widow, even when we are too defeated to have faith, Jesus is faithful. (laughs) So good. Some of you may be here and have never had faith like that in Jesus. Hear the good news. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy, full of compassion and mercy. You are not too unclean for him to come to your home. You are not too undone for him to come and touch your heart. His love and his compassion have nothing to do with your performance. Some of us have trusted Jesus, but we need another reminder that he's willing and able to say the word in our lives again. He's able to do the big things, but he's also able to do the things that you might consider too small or insignificant or mundane. Has Jesus ever said the word in your life? Can you think of an instance where Jesus provided for you, came through for you, rescued you? Can you recall a time when Jesus said the word or came through in a significant way for someone you know? Was there ever a person who shared this faith in Jesus with you? The explicit, that's the in-your-face, reader board, in-neon lights message of this passage is that Jesus can just say the word and do things that are humanly impossible. And the text encourages us explicitly to trust in Jesus, not only because he's capable, but because he's accessible and good. But there's an implicit message here as well, implied in the story. If we have witnessed Jesus saying the word in our lives, then we're invited to spread that good news with other people. Consider the story of the centurion. How did this guy, this Roman centurion, even know to ask Jesus for help? Well, let's look at the text. It says this. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his only slave, of his slave. Now, how do you think he heard about Jesus? Because people were talking. He had to hear about Jesus before he could seek and have all this great faith that we've been preaching about the whole time. People were talking. They were sharing stories about Jesus, about the kind of character that he has, the kind of power he was displaying all over Judea. And when Jesus raises the son of this widow from the dead, what is the first thing he does? Two things. He sits up. That's the first thing, which is cool because Jesus says, young man, arise. The first thing that this this newly, you know, kid that has a new life does is obey Jesus. That's pretty great. And then the second thing is totally off script. Jesus doesn't tell him to do anything else. He raises up and he begins to speak. Dead people who come alive can't help but speak about the fact that they've got new life. Spiritually dead people who come alive in Christ can't help but talking about it, can't help but speaking, whether it's a word or deed, 
full of the life of Christ. We need to proclaim the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. That's the implicit message here. And that's exactly what the crowds did when Jesus raised this young man from the dead. Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went all over Judea and all over the surrounding district. How? Because people were talking about it. Just say the word. Who do you know that needs to hear these words, this good news? How will they know if we don't share the word of Jesus? Changing, just sharing how he's changed our life or, or the lives of people we're close to or know about. All right, now I know you're like, oh, you're talking about evangelism. This all makes me so anxious. And, okay, let me just tell you some stuff Jesus isn't asking us to do. It's not explicit or implicit in this text. He's not saying, okay, what I want you to do is... Um, you know, I want you to go debate theology with people. That's, that's the number one way to just, you know, tell them what he is. Some of you are in a position that maybe you're, you're trained for that or you're just really good at it. You know, Collins is really good at that kind of thing because he's got context with people, right? Not everybody. He's not telling us, um, I'm pretty sure this is in, uh, you know, second Facebookians. He's, he, he, he's not telling us to post our opinions on Facebook without nuance and context of relationship. He's not saying that. It's, nobody really cares what you think out of context. And he isn't telling us to be weird and obnoxious about our faith. He does call some people to be weird and obnoxious. Uh, I think the prophet Isaiah was told to sit around naked for a while, and he cooked his food on his own dung. Yeah, that's weird. And, 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 and some of the prophets were obnoxious. But that was a specific calling. Some of you may get that calling, but if not, don't do it. <laughs> right? You, you don't have to be weird and obnoxious to share your story with people. For the most part, we're called to share the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. And here, here's something that, like, it's so obvious, but I don't do well enough. And, and that is, we... we do we share what Jesus has done in our life in an appropriate way with our kids, if you have kids? I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's like, duh, it's a no-brainer, but how often do I just go through, and I don't even think about this, this opportunity I have with my own kids, or with, with your parents, for those of us, I mean, maybe you have grown parents, are, are, we, are we even in the habit in our family and friend systems of sharing the works of God, what he's done in our lives? Some of this is low-hanging fruit stuff. What about with our friends, who we've earned the right to share with? And one of the things I'm finding is that the, the longer I walk with my friends who don't know Christ, the more that they tease this stuff out of me. I'm not like looking for, where, how, how can I get a crack in their armor or whatever it is, as if they're, how armor, I don't know. Um, but you know, the longer I just walk and share life with people, talk about my own struggles, then I can talk about how God has carried me through hard things or gives me the strength to do all the things that, that I'm doing. And, and those, are, those are just natural ways of talking about, about what Jesus is up to in my life. All he has to do is say the word and he can transform things that are bigger, too big for us to handle. I invite us to sit with that. Uh, would you pray with me?
praise you, Lord. You are not only able, but you are willing and you are good. I pray you would release great faith in us to pursue you, to ask you for help in the mundane things, in the things that overwhelm us, that give us anxiety, things uh, about our, our world situation that can so easily crush us if we don't factor you into the equation. We declare cognitively, as your word has just described to us, that you're able to do all things with the word, that you are the sovereign God, that you are the risen and reigning Jesus, we're an Easter tide. This is the, these are the, the, the faith we proclaim says these things. But Lord, we also confess that we've not allowed it to trickle into our reflexes. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to grow in such a way that it is our natural reflex to come to you first, to seek your help, in these areas that, uh, that we can't solve on our own. And I pray that that would release hope for us, that we would have a quality of life, Lord, that, that is hopeful, not wishful, but hopeful, knowing that you're, you've got this in, in your very capable hands. And even if things aren't going the way we wish they would go, they will end up the way you want them to be. Help us to have a long view and to trust you for the journey. Bless, Lord. Amen.